Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Ghouls in the House. I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. I'm Natalie Latofsky. And this episode, we decided to head out to sea. Which is a place neither of us really like to be. I have no desire to go there, <laughs> ever. I'll tell you the quick little story about how when I was little, which you've already heard, of course, mm -hmm. where I was little, and I forget what it was, some kind of destroyer ship or some ship of some kind that was like docked and, and uh, we're, in, we're in Baltimore in case you don't know. And uh, downtown at the Inner Harbor, I don't remember how old I was, was real little and we went there and they had like a, a ship docked at the harbor. It was like a military ship, not like an old sailing ship or something like the one that's always there, but like a destroyer or something like that. You know, it was all metal and gray and they gave us a tour and we walk up on the deck, and all I can remember is there was no railing, no warning signs, no nothing. At one point, I'm walking past a spot, and I literally step right past a hole. And I looked into it, and the hole went straight down to the water. I don't know what that is, or why that was open. Or it was why. a child ejection hole. But it was very much a size I could easily have fallen <laughs> into, or gotten trapped in. And that was the degree of care they were evidently taking back in the, I don't know, late 70s, early 80s in uh, giving tours for kids. So that's not the only reason I hate the ocean, but it's a good one to start with. I mean, I've never almost fallen through a boat hole, but I don't like boats simply because I get seasick. And then right now, of course, cruise ships are just nothing but, you know, just... Uh, I mean, to be Petri honest, dishes, cruise they, ships were always vectors. Yeah, they always have been. And now it's even worse. So... No, we're not fans. I also don't know how to swim. So uh, that's already horror, as long as, <laughs> as soon as you're watching a movie with water in it. So we figure it's going to be extra horrific if we look at horror on the sea. So we actually watched movies. I know I'd seen the first one once, and I'm pretty sure I saw pieces of the second one. I had seen neither. But uh, what we decided to go with this time was a movie from 2009 called Triangle. And then we followed that up with a 2002 film, the first original idea film produced by the Dark Castle Company that was set up at like the end of the 90s, early 2000s to remake William Castle movies. And a while back, we did our House on Haunted Hill stuff. Mm -hmm. Ghost Ship was an original script. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that thing, whatever that was. But first up is Triangle, which you know, is both horror and science fiction, and I think really good. Very. And I think we're going to start off just by saying that, which is we, we definitely recommend Triangle. But I say that right at the beginning, because this is a movie that is a very uh, intricately constructed mystery about just what is going on on this derelict ship that our characters find themselves on. It would be complete... And spoilers here we have to talk about the whole movie so basically this is one where i'm going to tell you right at the outset if you haven't seen triangle go watch it and then come back because we're going to talk about everything there's no real easy way to do it otherwise you don't have to watch ghost ship we'll say that right off the bat but you can if you want to but you can always listen first and then go back to it but we also strongly advise against it <laughs> <laughs> anyway triangle have you watched the movie yet Good. So anyway, what the hell was going on with that thing? It's amazing. 
Well, actually, like one of the things I realize enticed me about it is it's a it's not time travel, but it is a temporal loop, a sort of mystery going on. And basically what we got as our setup is uh, Melissa George is one of our leads. It was an Australian film that was shot in Queensland. That was another thing, by the way, is that we didn't even realize it at the time we picked these. Both of these were done in Queensland, Australia, mm-hmm. and both of them were shot partially on uh, rebuilt parts of boats that were set up on like a like a little um, piece of land or something down there to shoot the boat stuff. And it's very similar productions in certain respects, but the results are drastically different. We didn't realize it at first because everyone's doing an American accent in Triangle. Yeah, it's like everybody in the behind the scenes is like, you know, good day. And then on the movie, they're totally... And I guess the idea was they figured, well, we'll be able to sell it better internationally if they all, you know, speak American accent. So... Melissa George and, and, uh, is our lead. She is uh, a single mother with a son who clearly has like developmental issues. I believe they say in the film that, that he's, autistic. he's autistic. Yeah. And so we get like pieces in the beginning of what seems to be a potential like last straw kind of morning she has with him. Oh, you're just having a bad treatment. That's all, baby. That's all it was. Bad dreams make you think you've seen things that you haven't. But then it segues into her taking a boat trip with a group of friends. They've arranged this in advance to take a little cruise on this, like, the tiny yacht, nice-looking boat, and uh, wind up getting caught in a storm, turned over, and then, lo and behold, a big, like, not quite Titanic era, because it's sort of a modern-era boat, but mm-hmm. what looks like a, a derelict ship that's been through something just kind of drifts out of the storm and they all decide to board it. And what happens after that is sort of a never ending for our lead character. Anyway, a sort of never ending, almost happy death day kind of loop. Although it's not quite that either because there's no like day that ends and starts again. It's constant. Basically. I think what's important to note for anyone that has watched time loop movies before or stories or things where you realize oh at the end of it you're back at the beginning it's not quite like that it's not like oh this is a set path and then we start off on that same path again in a sense there is sort of three versions of that time loop happening always simultaneously which is just one of many reasons why the title of triangle is meant to be indicative of Mm -hmm. sets of three throughout the film so basically the third at the end of the third time loop it starts the first time loop over again right but we don't watch it like a groundhog day or happy death day kind of situation happy death day by the way another thing we'll have to do one day that one in the sequel and Mm -hmm. hopefully by then there'll be a third one um it's not quite that because yeah it's unending basically what it's it triangle also sounds like a sort of sly reference to bermuda triangle although that's not necessarily where they are which is what i kind of thought going in i thought it was going to be oh they sail into the bermuda triangle and then things get weird but no, it's it's just not really. a Gilligan's Island three hour tour yeah. of doom. But I think it's it's there. Like you're supposed to think, oh, triangle, and you're on the sea, and something weird happens. I think the implication is there. Right. Like you you pick up on that subconsciously, maybe. 
But there's the idea that once they're on this boat, the sequence of events taking place on this boat keeps happening. But it keeps happening in not quite a linear fashion. The loops are overlapping with each other. Like you pointed out, there's Jess as our main character. There's basically three of Jess, probably of all of them, at any one point. Uh, they're constantly overlapping. The events keep starting again, but it's not like it just breaks and starts again because the middle of another one is happening somewhere else in the boat. It just keeps happening. And as the viewer, we do, by around halfway through, start to see events from another perspective because as we follow one Jess from the moment she boards the boat to the end of the story, we're basically following her as she evolves into the different versions of her that take place at different points in the loop and therefore then see the events from her perspective as they replay but from a different point of view than she was at the first or the third time it's it's difficult to describe it's difficult to describe but it doesn't really uh, demand much of you to figure it out like you can figure it out it's not confusing to watch yeah you can figure it out you can piece it together but it is also intricate it's it's complex it feels like it must have been planned. And uh, I, I want to turn the computer right now. I should have shown this to you before. But like one of the things I discovered about this is there is quite a little uh, fan base for this movie out there, including someone who put together this massive infographic of everything they were able to figure out about the loops by setting it up as triangles and saying, here's where the things are happening on the mm. boat. And also a list called the multitude of Jesses and like how there are three at any one point, the questions that the movie leaves at the end, the recurring use of triangles throughout. The boat, by the way, is named the Aeolus. And we get a little bit of mythological definition in the movie at one point. It's related to the myth of Sisyphus. It's a slightly clunky, like, insert fact that they throw in there because there's like a little history of the boat on the boat. And then one of the um, passengers is just sort of like, oh, yeah, I remember studying that in school and it's this or that. Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's about ferrying, you know, people or it's he tricked death or I can't really remember. But anyway, let's just find the captain. And right. it's like, OK, and that, we... that was probably the clunkiest little piece of like yeah. exposition. It's like they wanted that in there so they could have their mythological literary metaphor aspect of it but it's not very smoothly handled it would have been i think more effective if you just trust that the viewer if the viewer is interested in piecing it together will look that up and realize that's your reference rather than telling the viewer by the way did you catch this reference and i think really that's the only I guess, slip up really in what is otherwise just such a well choreographed and well written movie. I also think we should say one of the things that I remember us talking about at the time is it's a low budget film. Mm. It's it's also low budget in the sense that you can feel the, the planning happening like they're thinking themselves. Well, you know, if you set most of a movie on a boat, you can really contain things. We've got a small cast. Liam Hemsworth is like one of the only known names I would think people would recognize. Uh, although Melissa George, our lead, among other things she's done, she appeared in a failed pilot for a television show in the 2000s called Lost in Oz, which was presided over by Mick Garris, who happens to be the subject of a biography we've just published from A3 Publishing. So how about that? 
Anyway. We didn't do that intentionally either. It's no. just we, we picked our little pairing of movies and then realized that. But it's a low budget movie. It's a smart idea. Like, well, what kind of story can we tell on a single set or on a small selection of sets? But unlike some films, including the next one, <laughs> um, this is an example of a low budget film where it totally compensates for any limitations it may have by looking good with what it has to work with. I mean, it looks good. The boat looks good. All the locations on the ship look good. You know, the cast to a person does a very nice job. They're all good in it. And also, one another thing I'd say is, like, you got maybe the first third or so, really, you might feel once or twice, you start to feel like, well, where is this going? And it's very slow and methodical. But it rewards you for sticking with it because it's a case where I think the slow burn thing works because... They wait a while before they actually start really dumping on you how weird the situation is. And once it does that, it really starts hitting you into the face with a few things that are overwhelming with how crazy the situation is. But you have to wait a while for it to get to that point. It escalates. Yeah. It, it escalates very quickly, actually. It's sort of like the first... Well, I guess really, if you're talking about composition and triangles and thirds and sort of how well that's done, it really is like you spend the first third of the movie with what I guess I would call Jess one. And yeah. then you spend the next third of the movie looking through, like experiencing it as Jess two. Mm-hmm. And then Jess two sort of evolves into Jess three and at the end, you then see Jess 3 become Jess 1 again. Again, yeah. Uh, which is extraordinarily well done. And I think, I think they put the most care and thought into her storyline and her progression as a character, especially in sort of making her your sympathetic lead mm-hmm. and then having her evolve into someone who you sort of see as having just completely broken with reality and evolved into something much more monstrous and then like taking that a step further and realizing she wasn't such a sympathetic character to begin with and that that's sort of what put her in this loop from the start. Well, here's a couple things. One is one is that I think Melissa George does an amazing job in this because she really does convey nicely all the different permutations of this one character. And I don't know how many people can really accomplish that well who are like much better known than her. It's a lot. She basically carries the movie. I mean, everybody else in it is good, but it's all in service to her little journey through the boat and also like you said it's fascinating revelation when you start to realize oh wait a minute she's a terrible human being and that also leads to another aspect which is it is not really laid out we and you know at this point you've seen it right good it's not laid out explicitly what's happening but it's pretty clear but apparently there's a strong fan base out there that has a theory about where it starts. Like, 
I mentioned at the beginning of this that you get like a few tidbits of this one particular day, like the, the sun spills something, she's angry, she's yelling. Then we see her throwing a bag in the back of her car and she's going to this, the, the trip on the boat. And it's interesting because when that happened, you said, when we we're watching it, like the very beginning, you said, you know, did she kill the kid? Right. Because it's she like she's son? throwing a bunch of stuff in a bag in her trunk and then going on this boat tour. But she just walks onto the boat with no bag, no kid. So later on in the movie, we see all the little quick cut bits and pieces that were assembled into the beginning of the film in their context, laid out a little more like... Uh, laid out a little slower as we see them in their proper context. And it's that first day that led up to her leaving for the boat. And one thing that does come up is the person in the bag is basically the Jess three that comes back from the end of the movie to the house, startles her son, which is what causes the spill in the first place. And is then the one she actually, it's just one Jess three kills the earlier version of her that attacked her son for spilling it. So you could call it Jess Zero in the bag. It's like the Jess yeah. that's like never on the boat to begin with. Yeah, she never gets on the boat because she's in the bag in the back of the car. But what's what I've discovered what's interesting is then like we flash forward to the end and we'll just jump to the end here is that you get that fake out thing that happens in horror movies sometimes where you think you've escaped because you're out in the world now, but you clearly haven't escaped. And we think, oh, she and her son are now on the road. She got away from the boat finally. She floated away. She swam to shore. And there's a weird taxi driver who's going to take her to the boat. But he's dressed all in black. The sky's definitely darker than it was. And his every line of his is heavily weighted with meaning. Like, you know, I'm going to wait for you. You're going to be back, right? And, and you I'll leave the meter running. Leave the meter running. And you realize very quickly that he is like the ferryman or death or whoever it is who is there basically to facilitate what appears to be an endless purgatory-like existence for her in which she will always be getting on the boat and always be going through it. And the kid is killed in this traffic accident they get involved in before she goes on the boat. But as you had said at the beginning, the first time we watched it, you were like, was that the kid in the bag? And then we find out, no, it's another Jess in the bag. But there is a fan base out there that feels very strongly that that's just in the bag after the loops begin but mm. the first time it happens she killed her son in other words the theory is and i really i like this theory because i feel like it's the one that explains everything is that who knows what else is going on in her life but she's not a good person if she's capable of that level of violence she's dealing with this son that she can't handle that incident that day happened where he spilled something, maybe the first time it wasn't because he saw another version of his mother out the window, just for whatever reason. Right. She lost it that day and murdered her own son. And along the way to get rid of the body, got in a traffic accident, died on the road, and now she is serving her penance in hell, purgatory, whatever, going through an endless cycle of events in which she and these friends, none of whom have to be real at this point, but just projections of her psyche or they're not thing. even really her friends she only knows the guy who owns the boat yeah it's the like other his she's meeting. friends yeah. that are along for the ride and uh and the taxi driver the ferryman or death or who or the grim reaper or whoever is there always at the end of a cycle on the road to say it's time to get you back to the boat again and i like that it makes the most sense for that's where this started and now she's in it 
and we've basically been through enough of a journey with one version of her to be able to unfold here's what's going on here what you could also say too if that's the theory that you're running with um in the version that we see in here her son's painting he spills the water and in trying to clean it up she gets a blue splotch of like paint water all over her dress but you could argue maybe that actually the first time around when it happens, that that's actually representative that it's not a paint splotch. It's not on the floor. And the reason she took the dress off and put the dress in the bag, because you see the blue paint splotch on the dress in the bag, which later is shown to be because the Jess Zero is wearing it when she gets killed and shoved in the trunk. But maybe that's blood. Maybe that's actually blood from killing the kid and she takes the dress off and puts it in the bag with the kid because she's going to have to get rid of the evidence which is also that yeah um so i can see that as a theory um i could kind of get behind it too i def i mean clearly there's no question that she's in a purgatory loop that yeah. this time loop is her purgatory. That taxi driver guy isn't anybody else but some representation oh. of death or whatever. Yeah. No, it's it's basically <laughs> the angel of death. Nobody else sees him. The marching band on the road when she crashes the car. Like there's a marching band at a school nearby and they mm -hmm. all come running out to the road. And the symbol on the drum of the marching band is the same one that's on the drum at the bandstand on the boat right so i mean it clearly it's all been worked in and that as well i think is sort of your indicator that the boat in some sense was like never real like she never actually yeah. went on any kind of boat trip it's just that's the purgatory she got assigned because she was on her she was on her way to take this like one day boat cruise mm -hmm. with a friend of hers. And so why not essentially take that version of her reality and transform it into her own personal hell? Because it's clear on the boat, once she starts to realize what's going on and you're sort of realizing it along with her, I think that's really the nicest touch is that the viewer is finding out where they are in like the loop of things as she does and it's clear from all the signs that they have that she has been through this loop i'm guessing at least like two dozen times before i mean if not more because well, there's just a vast quantity of of items like a locket that falls through a grate and she looks down and there's just a mountain of lockets if i remember there. if i remember right another good example of the triangle thing there are three times we get the visual mm -hmm. of mounting number of identical items to indicate cycles the first time is the locket where she looks through the grating at one point first time's the paper the paper where she walks into the engine room and there's all the balled up oh, papers I on forgot. the floor. Oh, I forgot. So really, that makes four. Okay, so that doesn't work for the triangle oh, no? aspect. Oh, no? What were you thinking they well, were? Well, I'll I'll say. So okay. I forgot about the paper thing. She was what she was writing down to see if that's her handwriting. If it's her handwriting. And like, they're if they, all laying there. If they there. bored, kill them all. Yeah, and they're all laying there, which shows that every time she goes in that room, she tries it with another piece of paper. That's mm -hmm. right. Now, I was thinking of there's the locket. When she looks through the grating and she loses the locket while looking at the pile of lockets, 
the next locket falls. And mm-hmm. evidently that happens every time. The big one, which was so big that I remember you went like, whoa, <laughs> that <laughs> is when one of the ones on the, the cruise, the one who's married, when she gets stabbed by one of her, one of Jess, and starts wandering away, we suddenly like uh, round a corner to a spot on the deck and see like dozens of her laying there dead in different positions. She always winds up there dying. And it's like she's so out of it, and so at the end, she doesn't even seem to react to the fact that she's dying on a pile of herself. I reacted for her. Yeah. So it's that's, it's quite jarring. That's one of the best moments of the entire movie. Another reason why you needed to have seen it first. Um, because it's just such a punch in the gut, but it's an amazing image mm-hmm. to see that. So that's that was, that was my two. Gotcha. And then the third... Was at the very end when you think, oh, maybe she's out of it. And she looks down and sees that the bird that she just killed with the car, there's a pile of birds down there. Yeah, she hits a bird with the car and her kid panics. And she's like, all right, all right, like yeah. I'll go get it. I'll and take the- care of it. And she gets it. And she's walking over to the edge of the road to toss it into the sea. And instantly as she's carrying the bird, I was like, it's going to be a pile of birds there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she gets to the edge and throws it over and her face just drops and she looks down and there's just a pile of birds there. And, and it's like, not yep. like it's not like we haven't seen that in other movies. That kind of beat has been done before, but I always I can't think of a good example. Maybe someone listening will give me a good example. I know there are other movies I've seen that are those moments where you think you're out of the loop or the reality you were stuck in. And then you get this like chilling, horrifying moment where you realize that hasn't stopped yet. And and actually we were just talking, you and I, about The Prisoner. Mm-hmm. Because you've been watching Columbo and we, we saw Patrick McGowan's first Columbo. And we were talking about The Prisoner quite a bit, which I've never been a huge fan of. I just respect it and know about it from a pop culture perspective. When you say not a huge fan, not that you dislike it, it's just it's not something you've followed the fandom of. Yeah, I've never even seen all of it. But I've seen it. Definitely, I deliberately watched the ending because I wanted to see how it ended. And that's the thing I'm thinking of. Again, spoilers for the end of The Prisoner. (laughs) Um, Is how at the end of that, it's kind of like he maybe the prisoner has escaped and he's back in his apartment, except when the door closes at his, at his apartment, it's the same sound that the doors in the village make. So you get this idea of, oh, he's never really left. Or maybe, the you know, we're all trapped in the village is the idea. You get that same kind of feeling from Inception. Yes. Is, is yeah. one where you're like, not sure is the top spinning does it fall is it not yeah and i guess you sort of could also say the same maybe for um the descent oh yeah a little bit but in a different way it's like that's one of those where well it also depends on what version yeah it depends on which version of it you see and the ending is sort of presented as either this is the ending or this is a daydream of what the character wants the ending to be right so spoilers by the way for inception and the descent (laughs) (laughs) oh i don't know oh i don't know if you're if you're listening at this point i i think you know okay you've you've probably seen inception yeah i would think so if not you've you've already (laughs) put the sound effect in i'll take care of that but yeah i know there are other examples that that i just can't think of but that's uh Mm-hmm. that's what we're dealing with it's like the idea that you find out the loop is not the boat 
the loop is her. But Which I, I really like as a touch. That idea, mm. like, you, you get trained, I think, sometimes in storytelling. Like, you figure, oh, they got on the boat, and now there's a loop on the boat. So there's like there's a tendency as a viewer to think, I see the the phenomenon takes place on this physical location. Then you find out, no, it's the whole world she's in. And that's it. Because you tend to think of a haunted place, not yeah. a haunted person. Right. And this does fit very well with our standard of haunted places. We have very two, much so. It two can, haunted boats. It can get very claustrophobic. Yeah. And I, I think really the only part that feels very up for debate and it's not really clear from watching it, and it's just sort of the interpretation of it, is the people that she is on that boat with, Yeah, are they just projections of people that have been inserted into this purgatory loop that she's on? Or are they real people who also, as part of their own sub-purgatory are also all together on this boat in this loop, just in a different way. Well, while I think that's definitely up for grabs, and the movie doesn't give you enough so that you as the audience can decide for yourself, Yeah, I think the one argument I would make is, since it's very clear that from the beginning to the end of the movie, it's from her point of view, you could argue that then means the others aren't real in any significant sense because we never get things from their point of view. We don't get insight into them thinking about everything. We stay with her. Mm-hmm. The rest of them are objects. Now, does that mean that's the answer? I don't. I think the movie's deliberately designed not to care about it, so you could decide for yourself. But that's the argument I would make, is that we're with her the whole time, therefore this is her world that she's in, and then the question is, does she even know these people? Like, as if they're all created, then has she ever met any of them before? Like, she, supposedly, she's meeting a couple of them for the first time. She's definitely met the guy whose boat it is because yeah. she has the sticky note on her refrigerator in her house yeah. of, like, this is where she's going. And there's Heather who disappears off the boat, like, right away. I mean, I guess really in talking about all these other other people as objects... It's worth noting we haven't really even brought up any of their character names or anything up until this point. They're just sort of pieces of Jess's story. Yeah. But I think Heather's a good point that essentially you have a ragtag group. You have the guy whose boat that it is. Her, her friend who clearly is the greatest guy you know. Mm-hmm. Greg. Just super nice of course he's named greg he knows that she's a single mom and that you know her son has special needs Mm -hmm. and he invited both of them to come out on the boat and they're surprised that she didn't bring the kid Mm -hmm. then he's got the i guess sort of deckhand slash roommate who is um the character played by liam hemsworth that's victor that's Victor. Do you remember hearing the name Victor at any point during the movie? Because I don't. Like once or twice. Maybe once Probably. Or twice. But basically Victor, he found like sleeping behind the bait and tackle shop and was like, you want to live on my boat and help me like with the sales and stuff? I don't mm-hmm. know. And he was like, yeah, sure. Because he's, again, the nicest guy you've ever met. And so then also on the boat is his friends from college. Um... The woman, the woman is the one who winds up dying on a pile, in a pile of, herself of herself. Is Sally mm-hmm. and her husband? It's husband. Isn't yeah, it? her husband is Downey. 
which is a weird name for a first name, yeah. but somebody on this movie knew a Downey. Yeah, so. I mean Downey basically is like a yacht bro. Yeah. Um, you don't really care what happens to him. They're both not really likable, but when she's dying and that scene, yeah, I feel like you suddenly care a little bit. I mean, it's it's so tragic that it doesn't matter. You know, like neither of them seem like horrible people. No, they're just they're just mm, they're not very likable. I wouldn't spend time with them. And apparently, like every so often, they come out for a boat ride with mm-hmm. their friend Greg, nicest guy in the world, who she clearly is also pining for, but she's already married to Yacht Bro for yeah reasons. And so every time she brings a girl along who's a friend of hers, so she thinks she'll try and set him up with. So that's where we get Heather. Right. And what I find interesting in all of this is that Greg and Heather seem like the nicest people on the boat. Like Greg, who owns the boat, nicest guy in the world, invites, you know, the single mom and her son, lets the guy live on the boat because he has nowhere else to go. And then you've got Heather who gets brought along. She clearly understands it's a fix up. She also clearly understands that he's interested in Jess. That's why he brought her aboard. And she's not trying to get in the middle of that. She's telling him, hey, look, for what it's worth, I'm not interested. It's totally fine. And in the same way, she's super nice to Jess, who's taken a nap downstairs. And she goes down and Jess wakes up and said she's had a nightmare, which, you know, later we realize her nightmare is actually like Jess three's like waking up point on the beach. Yeah, she's like, like she's seeing a, a flash of the future. Yeah. And Heather's super nice to her telling her, you know, oh, we go through nightmares because it spares us like the, the bad things in real life. And here mm. have a glass of champagne. You'll feel better. Yeah. Well, then the storm hits and Heather gets like washed out a porthole and is never seen again. She doesn't show up on the boat. Nowhere. So that's Heather's exit point from the story. So that to me is my one indication that maybe they are real people. Because if Heather is the nicest person truly, and it seems like she is a good person with like a good soul, then maybe her getting washed out the porthole means one of two things. She also, like everybody on there was just, doomed to die but she wasn't doomed to be punished so she just is dead she's not part of this or she's actually separate from this death event that's going to happen for the rest of them and what we don't see is her getting picked up by the coast guard or like a rescue boat or something that's what i was thinking because she's wearing a life vest and they just literally never see her again and if she's wearing a life vest and she were somewhere around she would float to the surface like they would have seen her somewhere somewhere she's like being recovered and they're saying they're telling her that nobody else came back from this particular trip i mean lost at sea is a pretty good way to trap everybody in a time loop and have their bodies never resurface which then sort of brings you back around to you know maybe greg isn't the nicest guy you know and maybe what seems like that on the surface and it's all part of this sort of lesson of like everyone is more complex than they appear to be yeah and i mean i'm fine with that it's just i mean i don't know how much more you could do 
It's just that, like, in the absence of any information about any of them, you just have to suppose that then, because we never get anything that suggests there's any skeletons in their closet, or like Greg's done anything. Like, there's no like one line of dialogue. He's like, I've I've made mistakes in my life, and nothing. Yeah. Um. He does fight with her though. It's like they're on the boat. And he's basically telling her, like, she's crazy and, mm-hmm. like, whatever it is, like, she's going through, like, whatever her crap is, like, he doesn't have time for that. He just has to find the bridge and find the captain. Yeah. And she kind of snaps at him. Yeah. So, I mean, you really just have to figure maybe that's true. Maybe. And again, I don't think the movie is all that. Con- and I don't think this is a flaw either because I no. think it's nicely done. I don't think the movie's all that concerned with figuring that out like again that's something you can figure out if you want it leaves it open for you to to suppose what the other people are i mean this is basically like the epic mental quest i went through to try to figure out like why michael myers kills people in halloween and it's like you could try and come up with a reason or a formula or whatever it might be but not knowing it for certain doesn't change the fact that the movie's enjoyable. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think... It sounds like they're about to suggest another possible reason in the next Halloween. I mean, pun intended, like, we're kind of in the same boat here. Yeah. That you don't necessarily need to know why everyone else is involved in this or if they're even real involved in this. Because clearly, this is her punishment. Although in her punishment, they do seem to suffer. Yeah. And they are all killed painfully and in different ways. Mm -hmm. It's like they're killed in different ways. That's the interesting thing, by the way, is that this movie comes up for a lot of on a lot of lists as a slasher movie. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I saw that I think actually comes from some of the people making it. I'm not sure now. um, Was the idea of. Wouldn't it be interesting to tell a story? Can you create a story in which the final girl actually becomes the killer? And that's there. That's true. That is an aspect here. It's another great reminder of why the end of Halloween 4 is one of the greatest missed opportunities of all time. But um, it doesn't feel like a slasher movie, though, when you're watching it. Like, yes, it's true. You have a character who actually, you know for all intents and purposes, wears a pretty traditional slasher outfit. Basically, again, we got Jess 3 eventually evolves into Baghead Jess, who's the one who's doing all the killing. And Which that's just straight... a nice touch, but it's also obviously to mask the fact that they don't have the capability to do multiple hers. Well, they do one shot in the ballroom with mm. two of her. Yeah. But again, it's, it's, it's a low-budget movie that knows its limitations but still looks really good yeah it doesn't you know and it doesn't feel like a cheat because it makes sense in the context of the story why she decides to start doing that and what i was going to say was it's just it's sackhead jason or town the dreaded sundown at that Mm -hmm. look you know so there's that she's stalking around with an axe it's very slasher in certain respects but it doesn't feel that way when you watch the movie it's it's a very uh, there's a very oppressive, but I would say in a good way, very oppressive quality to the atmosphere of this movie that the further along you go, the more heavy and dark it feels until really that stretch of like last five, seven minutes or so. Basically, 
however long it is from about the point where she's in the car with the kid and we get the taxi driver and all that once we're up to that like right before the birds Mm -hmm. um that whole last sequence feels so inescapable and heavy and sad and it's just and i think in a great way it's very successful it also means like it's not a movie i could ever imagine was like oh let's pop that on but it it's very well done and i also think that the way it all moves to sort of start the loop over again to turn just three into just one in a sense i kind of feel like that is the point where she has the ability to make a choice that might finally end her purgatory because it starts out where victor the uh, deckhand caesar getting out of the cab or walking in or whatever it is and he asks her where her son is because he thought her son was coming along and she has this really long awkward pause and says he's at school and I feel like that's the moment where she has the power to end the loop if she takes responsibility if she takes responsibility in a sense whether it's saying like like there was an accident like he was hurt there was an accident he died we crashed the car i killed him in my kitchen whatever it is she has the ability right there in that moment because she stops and really thinks before she answers and she knows it's a lie but by the time she's on the boat she is determined to get back home to her son because he's at school he's waiting for her Like, he needs her to come back, and Greg's trying to tell her it's okay if he's at school, somebody's looking after him, and she's believing at that point he's at school. But at that first moment, she knows he's not. Mm -hmm. And that's the point where she could end it all and either, I guess, I don't know, go to hell or, or not you know, get forgiven. Accept responsibility. Accept responsibility, whatever it is. I think that's her point when she could end it. And every time she doesn't is when it starts up again. Which is the the little bit of inception, I guess, uh, intellectual exercise. There would be, you know, you get to the end, you think to yourself, will there ever be a loop where she finally decides to take responsibility or tell the truth? You know, will the top actually, what is it in inception? If the top stops, then it's real. Right. Right. Um, and everybody's always like, is the top ever going to stop or is it just going to keep going? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, I mean, in my opinion, is a crappy way to end I up. don't like that movie. I, I, I do not like it. <laughs> I'm not afraid. This, I don't like anything Christopher Nolan has ever done. I think Nolan is one of those filmmakers who is has based his entire reputation on making people think that he's far, far cleverer than he is. And by extension, making them think. That they're clever. They're very clever for figuring out how clever he is, and his stuff is garbage. There we go. Did I lose any (laughs) listeners? I'm not really going to fight you on that one. Yeah. But anyway, moving on to other things. We we digress. We digress a little bit. Um, The only other thing, actually, I was thinking of, it occurred to me just while we're sitting here talking, and you're talking about, like, the threes and how things come together, and it occurs to me when she, when Jess won is getting ready to board the boat. We see 
a seagull land on the mast. Yeah. And then fly off. When Jess 2 is on the boat and like looking over the rail, she sees the gulls eating like the body of like one of the passengers that has been pushed overboard. And then later we see that it's her that's pushing him overboard. Mm -hmm. And then in the end, she hits the gull and kills the gull and tosses it onto the pile of dead gulls. And then we get back around to the start of the loop and you've now got a live gull sitting on the mast again. And it's kind of a nice like thematic touch that runs throughout as well. Yeah. The bird thing feels like a bit of a, very obvious kind of metaphor to do about like spirit free spirits and like you know the soul you know flying free or is it trapped or whatever that's okay it's i it it works pretty well and i really think that most of this is done really well and also you you and i have both also felt very strongly about uh the sort of a24 and uh inspired era of the slow burn where here we go First, I'm going to talk about Nolan, and now I'm going to talk about A24 movies. It's been loving, lovely having listeners. Yeah, it was nice having a show. And uh, and and how sometimes the slow burn concept is used as a virtue in and of itself, where there's really no, no substance behind the slow burn. Slow burn isn't enough. You actually need to tell a story. And in this case, I feel like it's a slow burn setup that then leads to some fantastic payoff, Mm -hmm. very good characterization, and a really interesting and intricate structure of storytelling. And so it's a slow burn that works. I would love to see the storyboards. I think it would have been an extraordinarily complicated explainer to anybody who who was getting, you know, associated with this project to try to figure out what the heck was going if on if they wanted to do it right they would have had to have really had a sense of where everybody is on the boat at any given point so that you'd know who's going to intersect yeah i mean they might not have cared that much but i would think that they would have had to figure out something they did though i mean they had to because no one ever intersects with a version of someone that they're not supposed to i mean yeah. air quotes around supposed yeah. to but in whatever oh, loop they're in one thing by the way i feel like we're getting to the end of this but one thing by the way is it's not ironclad the way it goes because it does change. Certain things feel like they're consistent, but like for instance, Victor dies in slightly different ways. Like it happens like at one point she kind of stops the sequence of events in the ballroom and it happens differently. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's not always exactly the same loop that's going on. It's like well, multiple versions. Well, you could versions. argue, I guess, Victor 1, Victor 2, and Victor 3 all die differently. And therefore, that loop of the three, if it's three of them, each one of the three of them is the same each time. Right. Well, it could be. Because yeah. it's all overlapping. Mm-hmm. But like with the outside of that, the next larger level is the overlapping loops are all happening in big loops. Right. Uh, right. Okay. Because basically, for example... Um, it's Downey dying in loop two that creates the like objects that exist in the bathroom yeah. to have just right on the mirror go to the theater. But loop one sees that. Yeah. So, I mean. So all the loops are at the same time. 
all the loops really are at the same time. It's just right. slightly like staggered. Oh, we should also mention um, another point of comparison with both of these. There, we noted, and it's hard not to believe some of it was deliberate anyway, is that there are distinct shining echoes in this. Yes. I mean, even though it's a boat, it feels like a luxury hotel kind of thing. And there's the bathroom and where something mysterious is in. And isn't it, in fact, in this that we get, what is it? Room 237. Yeah. I noticed it the minute they walked in, the only time they walk into a cabin room. Mm-hmm. I was like, is that 237? You look at the door and you're like, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. So um, the long hallways that are in shadow and mm-hmm. the patterned floors and patterned and, walls. And she's walking around with an axe. Walking and, around and with an axe. Gone crazy while she's been there. Where's Victor? He's dead. He fell over the side. How do we know you didn't kill him? You don't. If you want to live, you'll follow me. The other, I think, very clear, like, inspiration similarity for both of them, and it's reflected in some of, like, the action that happens is the Mary Celeste. Right. Which is sort of one of those seafaring legends that, like, everyone seems to know about, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's basically... The Mary Celeste is an example of like a real world ghost ship where it sort of disappeared off course and was found, you know, thousands of miles from where it was supposed to be with no one on board. Nothing moved on the deck, but she held her course. It creates this sort of legend material, mm-hmm. you know, and the, the idea of there still being like food on the table and places set no one was on board there was food on the table and a hot steamy cup of coffee but underneath the tin cup was rusted to the table and we'll get into it a bit with with ghost ship as we move through there but in both of them there's this feeling of walking in and there being like a ship that stopped in the middle of something and like ghost ship is far much farther gone. It's deteriorated. It's, you know, an abandoned ship, but it's clear in both cases, whatever happened in the abandonment happened pretty instantly. And in triangle, there's even still like a buffet set. And in loop one, they're walking through and they're eating the Mm -hmm. fruit. And like loop two, as like Jess is walking through, she sees everything's rotted, you know, in there. And so that's also a bit of like a shining touch to it as well. Um, So it's it's a very interesting blend of like philosophy and theology and slasher and mystery and you know, just general, like, boat legend. Um, it's something I definitely think I'd recommend people check out. But then there's Ghost Ship. Oh, dear. We're probably slowly going to move through the other Dark Castle stuff because we've got a box set. But, <laughs> but I mean, because we like it. And, and uh, House on Haunted Hills, where, you know, it started from for us anyway. But Ghost Ship, very quickly after they started this whole uh, venture... 
And between the time that they did the House on Haunted Hill remake and the return to House on Haunted Hill Ugh. that we talked about already. Yeah. And remember at the time we talked about how everything in the set design in one of them looked like parts of the house looked like a sunken boat. And it was weird. And it was like, well, they had it already because then in 2002 they did Ghost Ship, uh, which was based on an original script. And um, just start off right away, as you've probably already gathered. But this is terrible. This movie is bad. It actually gave me heartburn. I think that definitely did. It was so bad, I had to eat Tums. Also shot in Queensland. It's uh, starring in... Starring is really doing a lot of work in this sentence from Wikipedia. Starring an ensemble cast featuring Gabriel Byrne, Juliana Margulies, yes, from ER, and then others including Isaiah Washington and Carl Urban, who only like a year or two prior to that was busy in New Zealand shooting lord of the rings movies and had prior been on xena and hercules and at this point was probably still potentially shooting reshoots for lord of the rings but he's in it um he's carl urban is our stand-in hemsworth here because he's looking a bit thor-like uh, in it. <laughs> uh but basically they are the worst salvage crew in marine history they think they're good at this but they're not And I say this with zero professional or amateur experience in marine salvage. But all you need to do is watch these guys at work for five minutes and think to yourself, they have never salvaged anything in their lives. They are good at underwater welding. Apparently. Uh, And they get contacted by a mysterious squirrely guy who tells them that there's a boat to go get and they find and they're agreed to take him along and like you know share the proceeds and they discover the the antonio grazzo which is an italian ship actually this movie we mentioned mary celeste one of the things is based on is the story of the collision of the andrea doria in the 50s and this ship we see uh had this really like you know uh, rich clientele over there everybody dies oh wait we'll yeah wait to... let me let me pause you <laughs> let me pause you oh, on my. the plot there because the thing is this is not where the movie opens the movie opens looking like it's gonna be an episode of the love boat oh the text the text comes up on screen in neon pink script like cursive calligraphy script neon pink it's just ghost shit And you think, oh, is this like a Hallmark movie? Like I you're... genuinely thought we had the wrong movie in the machine. Yeah, like I thought, did I we get machine, the wrong? The did what we get I... the wrong ghost shit? Well, I mean, it's in the PlayStation. It's kind of in the machine. What am I a hundred years old? <laughs> kinda. We're playing it on the machine. We put it I... in the machine, and we can't tell is it the right movie. <laughs> I thought, even though it said Ghost Ship, I thought maybe this is the wrong one. Maybe this is a Ghost <laughs> Ship that was like a Lifetime movie or Hallmark or something. Because it's just a bunch of people on a boat. Um, Apparently, they're supposed to be on the boat in the early '60s, but it looks like they're on the boat in the late '20s. And again, this movie is heavily influenced by The Shining, so they're probably stuck in their mind thinking of that kind of thing. I guess so. Um, you know, and you're seeing all these fancy people and they're dancing around and, you know, having a a lovely time. And you have the like the lounge singer and she's singing and they're dancing. And then, you know, somebody is like, flip the murder switch. 
And they do. And then a cable snaps and slices through the entire deck of people. And like, they all just kind of go splooch. Yeah. Remember the scene in Resident Evil in the hallway where they all get sliced in the hallway? And that was the same year as this. So it's possible that it happened independently, but it very much feels more like somebody saying, oh, we can do better than that. We can kill an entire dance floor full of people and slice them through their chests and their waists and watch them all fall over in some of the worst, most (laughs) comically bad combination of CG and a couple practical effects I've ever seen. My absolute favorite is the fancy lady who's sliced in half at the waist and is crawling to try to grab at her own legs from her torso it's not only not even remotely effective as a horror beat but it's so laughable that it's it's just actually embarrassing there's at least one website out there which if i remember is comingsoon.com and i I mentioned this because i want them to suffer for it even if we don't have much of a reach someone (laughs) listening to us should know the comingsoon.com once listed this as one of the greatest moments in horror film history. Like one of the greatest kill scenes ever depicted in horror is this laughably bad, just garbage scene of people being sliced by a cable in Ghost Ship. And whoever wrote that, whoever approved it to post, and the entire Coming Soon website should be taken down and suffer for this ridiculous call that they made. It's terrible. The ghost ship. (laughs) Tonight's special guest, Gabriel Byrne. (laughs) He's clearly on the downhill run there. Um, So anyway, yeah, that's where it opens. And then we cut to our salvage crew, who apparently makes a living doing this, but God knows how they manage it because they're all inept. Worth mentioning as well is that in that opening scene, we see a little girl Hmm. um, who I think is played by, I want to say, Emily Browning. Emily Browning. I did it right. I'm terrible with names, but I did it. Um, And she's like the only one who doesn't get sliced through on the deck by the cable because she's shorter than the cable. And she's just like screaming her little face off. And she continues to appear throughout the movie. And before we start ripping the thing apart, it's really worth noting. She is the only part of this movie that seems to be truly like professionally done like she is a phenomenal actress she does a great job she's the only kid on cast like she was the only kid on the boat in the story and she's the only kid in the cast and she you know later on is playing like a ghostly version of herself who's interacting with them she's great in every scene that she's in she does a much better job than any of the adult actors who ostensibly have been doing that professionally for years yeah, she's you know good. and she's very good she takes it seriously and is trying to actually do what's required of her and she's great in it and still has a very prolific film career as yeah. an adult actress and clearly for a good reason because she's very talented and by the way as another parallel she's like the good ghost all the other ghosts on there are sort of enslaved to an evil ghost who's uh, facilitating all this. We'll get to that in a minute. But she's the good ghost who's really, as it turns out, trying to warn them, which also means that again in 2002, you had two movies with two little girl ghostly images, you know. You're all going to die down here. She connects mostly with Juliana Margulies' character of Epps. But yeah, so they come on board. 
they're now trapped in a situation where, for whatever reason, the ghosts are determined, again, shining-like in a way, to claim them all. And there is a massive amount of gold on this boat, which they definitely don't deserve. And they're going to try to figure out a way to get it off. It's also very shiny and well-packaged. And none of the actors in any way handle the bars in any that gives you any sense of the true weight of what a gold bar would be. <laughs> Not at all. Watch like a movie like Italian Job for like actors who've clearly been told. Now remember, this is heavy. Yeah. But these people just look at this like, huh, and just throw around these cardboard gold bars that have been sprayed with paint. And then she's saying, hey, you got to get out of here. Uh, and meanwhile, I should mention, remember how in Triangle, there was the morose guy shows up at the end as the taxi driver. And I said, he's very much like, like, Caron the Ferryman or Grim Reaper or Death. Well, the little squirrely guy that contacted them at the beginning of this movie I mentioned it tells them there's a boat we got to go get the stuff and uh, comes with them. His name is Jack Ferryman. F-E-R-R-I-M-A-N. Yeah, that's right. That's the level that this movie is aiming at. <laughs> they named the character Ferryman. What do you think we're going to find out by the end of the movie? Would you like to take a guess? Yes, of course you got it. Jack Ferryman is a ghost, and apparently he's made some kind of deal with the devil. As, as far as I remember, he was the one that was dealing with the heist of the gold originally. No, when, I think he was still already... Or was he already? He was already like a ferryman at that point okay. as well. So he may have been the one that doomed the, the ship. Yeah. Yeah. And therefore his shtick is draw people in and consume their souls. And, you know, and then the end of the movie makes it very clear that even if he loses this boat, which appears to be what, like, the devil has given him as his personal little office to work on. Like, yeah. here, you have a boat, and you use the boat to lure souls in, and that's your gig. And then when he loses this boat, it looks like he's just going to line up business with another boat. Mm -hmm. This is what he does. And, uh, but Ferryman. I mean, and to be honest, I'll, I'll be honest, I didn't even think of it when the movie started. So I feel bad. Like, I didn't get it. I didn't think of that initially. But it's probably because it's just so stupid. They <laughs> also is... only really, like, say his name <clears throat> yeah, once. It doesn't give it enough and to... And kind of mumble yeah. it and then they kind of roll in. It's also worth noting, it's like, we both had a different interpretation of the gold on the boat to begin with. Of, like, I think both kind of are valid in that they realize that the what is it, antonia grazza grazza yeah um that that boat had like collided with another the lorelei boat the lorelei <laughs> the lorelei right and that there was like one survivor on that boat they oh, brought on right. board right. which it turns out to be jack ferryman mm -hmm. and you know he then later talks about how like for a lifetime of sins like this is his penance and it's kind of unclear if that Jack Ferryman that you're seeing in like the flashback of it, was he already doing this? Like, was this already his shtick and he was already kind of like a Grim Reaper when he got on the Antonia Grazza? See, I figured that's where it started. Or was that where it started? And let me tell you, I already just spent more time thinking about it than you probably need to. Yeah. But I think considering the fact that you kind of see, I mean, much in sort of the time loop theme at the end of it, like Juliana Margulies is going to be fine. And she's our final girl soul survivor. Sort yeah. of. Yeah. 
all the like good souls get released in a burst of something. Yeah. Just souls just flying willy-nilly out of the ocean. Just woo! In an effect that makes the Coraline release of the kids' souls at the end of that movie look like the height of photorealism <laughs> compared to what this is supposed to be. And, you know, she's in the ambulance and then she sees the gold, the boxes of gold getting loaded onto mm-hmm. a ship, you know, in the harbor and he's boarding after them. So it's sort of one of those, like, maybe that's what the Lorelei was and bringing the gold on is the temptation. And that's how you figure out, like, yeah. who the evil souls are. But there's not even, like, a consistent mythology to it because no. he's sort of telling Epps at the end. Like, they're sort of the last two. It's him and Juliana Margulies. And the reason he got them is because it turns out he didn't need to salvage the boat. And he didn't necessarily need to reap their souls, but he did need their underwater welding skills because the boat was stuck in a a little like eddy and kept banging into the rocks. And how is he going to collect souls on his soul collecting boat if it's slowly sinking because of the hole in it? So he needs them to fix the boat, which, you know, you'd think the devil would just provide you with a new boat if your soul boat sinks. But what do I know about these kind of bartering situations? But okay, the story's terrible. Yeah. But um, but also he tells her, you know, everyone else was like somehow marked as like evil. And that's like they had sins, basically, is how he could like reap them. But like she didn't. And so... The he, little girl didn't. Well, I mean, Juliana Margulies didn't. Like, he I, couldn't really reap her. I think he was also saying the girl could That's why the girl was able to warn them, was because he couldn't control the girl. Maybe. But if that's the case, that's like saying literally every other human being who died on that boat was bad. Because, I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they show the flashbacks of, like, the people, like, killing the other people on board thinking they're going to take the gold. And clearly not everybody on board was part of that heist plan to begin with, including the people who you see at the beginning get like sliced up with the wire. Other people got poisoned. Some people got gunned down in the pool. It's a very complicated uh, plan. Well, by complicated, you mean chaotic and (laughs) just like, I don't know, I guess we kill them all. Like instead of just like waiting till the ship got back to port Mm -hmm. and then just taking the gold off the boat. Like, I don't understand why you got to kill everybody at sea in order to steal the gold. And then there's that dark, potentially really distasteful part where you find out the girl died by hanging in her room. And I thought it meant she hung herself because... Should be hanged herself, I guess. Um, because she was alone on the boat and trapped out at sea on a boat with nobody else alive. But you noted that the guys who were part of the heist like chased after her and maybe they're the ones that hanged her. I don't know. It's like everybody else is just getting straight up murdered out in the open, right? They're yeah. just shooting people. She's... You're seeing all this through a flashback that she's given. Right. And, you know, she's looking at doorways and you can see members of the crew who weren't part of the heist, like getting their throats slit. And these two guys pull her into the cabin and shut the door. Hmm. And everybody else is just getting killed in the open. And so to me, I felt like the implication is... They were going to have their way with this little girl first before they killed her because it's like that especially sort of like telling you just how evil these evil people were. 
and that they didn't even bother killing her. They just left her there and she hung herself. And it's like, it was just extra depressing. And it was just one of those beats where it was brutality for brutality's sake. Like the whole, I mean, the whole sweeping death, whatever that they did. So it's also um, a good point to mention. It's like, well, there's a lot of uh, carnage in this. All of it terrible looking. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a pool fills up with the worst CGI blood you've ever seen. There is a scene taken straight out of The Shining with the lady that seduces one of the salvage guys and then turns into a corpse right after. It's got the you know the girl, like the woman in the tub kind of thing. There's that. Uh, her makeup or whatever that was, whether it was CG or makeup, not terrible, but all the effects are bad. There's a ridiculous scene that you were laughing at where right before that happens, he's in the old ballroom there, which slowly like starts to transform around him into the ballroom of the past and brings that. And it's just so bad looking like he's standing on whatever they had then of some kind of like green screen closet while Mm -hmm. they animate the tables. And it's fascinating that, uh, the creative director of Photon VFX, which worked on this film, uh, there was a lot of pride, the Wikipedia page says, for Ghost Ship. It was the largest visual effects contract completely done in Australia to date. Okay. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And I'm sure everybody working on this did the best job they could do. And they were trying to make money. But the idea that someone was taking that much pride in the effects of ghost ship having seen what they were it's not they're not that good <laughs> they're bad it's and so, the thing is it is difficult to think about things in context just because like the technology gets so much better so quickly yeah even as viewers it's really difficult to think back to what everything else looked like at that point cgi in time. suffers a great deal I mean, you know, you and I saw like Shrek on TV. Oh, Shrek looks terrible. Yeah. And we like looked at it and we're like, that won awards. Yeah. And then we were looking at it and you're like, well, this doesn't look so good. And it hasn't aged well visually. Really, really. And so I can see how maybe at the time they were like, this is the pinnacle of what we can do, which also maybe explains why they went so comically over the top with so much of it because it's the cgi equivalent of the practical version of it becoming a like a real like this is my portfolio piece that i can show other people and say you want this 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 or this let me show you what i can do i can take the food in the can and turn it into bugs the story's terrible the special effects are bad are there good horror beats in this? No. Mm-mm. There's nothing, you know, I've talked before about how I don't watch these movies necessarily be scared, but if you're the type of person like, oh, well, is there something scary or effective? No, there isn't ever. It's it's silly and stupid and poorly done throughout. Characterization and acting, well, the only person who's really doing a superb job in this is Emily Browning, like you said. Juliana Margulies is all right. Gabriel Burns all right. But they're really clearly, well, here's the thing. They're clearly doing... It feels to me like the way you talk about how when you're in a job you hate and you only just do enough not to get fired. (laughs) That's what it feels like everybody on this cast is doing. And there is justifiable reason for them to be that way. So I, in a sense, excuse all of the actors because as we found out, one of the key elements of this movie is it was originally, by the way, the original version was called Chimera. And it was a spec script 
And it was a psychological thriller. It was not a supernatural horror movie. It was about a salvage crew getting stuck on a boat. And one by one, uh, one they were going to go crazy as they get like the gold fever. And one of them was going to turn out to be a killer picking off all the others. And Gabriel Byrne's character of Murphy was going to turn out to be the one who had gone the most crazy and was slowly picking off all the others. Which actually sounds like an interesting movie and I'd watch it. The entire cast signed on to that script. And only when they arrived in Australia to shoot the movie did they find out that one of the producers, legendary action producer Joel Silver, one of the co-creators of the Dark Castle Project, uh, had decided, you know what? It's post 9-11. People are going to want something like that's not like, re- I don't know what his thinking. We're like, the psychological thriller isn't going to work. We want like horror instead. Let's make a slasher movie. Changed it completely. Added the ghosts. Added everything. Added all the effect sequences. And basically they show up to shoot a movie that is completely unlike anything that they had signed on to. And instead they're all, as Margulies said in an interview, basically they found out they're trapped now in a horror movie. And... I can't get out of it. I mean, presumably they could have gotten out of it somehow. I don't know. Breach of contract or whatever. I don't know. But it's a, a terrible situation for them. And they soldiered through it. But I think that's why all the performances are just... They just look like they're waiting for the cut and, and to go eat. And there's like two or three scenes that actually felt like, oh, okay, this is like a, a credible attempt at a movie. And we realized those scenes were always scenes that were 100% void of anything supernatural and were probably leftover pages from the heist script that didn't have anything ghostly added to them. I mean, it's not like they would have had any thought that that was going to still be because by the time they were shooting, they were already shooting Ghost Ship. Right. But maybe they were able to like get themselves into those bits a little better because when they're just acting the pages that are yeah the heist thriller without any ghosts on the page they did an all right job with it and it was okay it's interesting uh according to the director's commentary i don't know from what maybe the disc we have i don't know steve beck who directed this supposedly said in the director's commentary the september 11th attacks inspired the studio to make the film a more definitive fight between good and evil instead of trying to be nuanced about the corruption of man well, first of all, I'm sorry, but I don't think Chimera, produced by the Dark Castle Company, was going to be a particularly significant nuanced analysis of the corruption of man. It might have been a decent little thriller, but come on. But so instead, what you wound up with was a laughably bad CG, you know, wrapped piece of garbage. It's very bad. Something that, dare I say, should not be salvaged. Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House featuring Natalie B. Latosky and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at NBLatosky, that's NB Lit Up Sky, and Arnold at Doctor of the Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were Triangle 2009 and Ghost Ship 2002. Who are you? Tell me! Ghouls in the House is an ATV publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.apbpublishing.com.